Section 1 of the History of Lady Julia Mandeville This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The History of Lady Julia Mandeville by Francis Brooke Section 1 Apostle George To George Mordaunt, Esquire Belmont House July 3rd, 1762 I am indeed, my dear George, the most happy of human beings, happy in the paternal regard of the best of parents, the sincere esteem of my worthy relations, Lord and Lady Belmont, and the friendship, the tender friendship, of their lovely daughter, the amiable Lady Julia. An increase of fortune, which you are kind enough to wish me, might perhaps add something to my felicity, but is far from being necessary to constitute it, nor did it ever excite in my bosom an anxious wish. My father, though he educated me to become the most splendid situation, yet instructed me to be satisfied with my own moderate one. He taught me that independence was all a generous mind required, and that virtue, adorned by that liberal education his unsparing bounty lavished on me, would command through life that heartfelt esteem from the worthy of every rank, which the most exorbitant wealth alone could never procure its possessors. Other parents hoard up riches for their children. Mine, with a more noble, more enlightened solicitude, expended his in storing my mind with generous sentiments and useful knowledge, to which his unbounded goodness added every outward accomplishment that could give grace to virtue and set her charms in the fairest light. Shall I then murmur because I was not born to affluence? No, believe me, I would not be the son of any other than this most excellent of men, to inherit all the stores which avarice and ambition sigh for. I am prouder of a father, to whose discerning wisdom and generous expanded heart I am so obliged, than I should be of one whom I was to succeed in all the titles and possessions in the power of fortune to bestow. From him I receive, and learn properly to value, the most real of all treasures, independence and content. What a divine morning! How lovely is the face of nature! The blue serene of Italy, with the lively verdure of England! But behold, a more charming object than nature herself! The sweet, the young, the blooming Lady Julia, who is this instant stepping into her post-chase, with Lady Anne Wilmot. How unspeakably lovely! She looks up to the window, she smiles. I understand that smile. She permits me to have the honour of following her. I'll order my horses, and whilst they're getting ready, endeavour to describe this most angelic of womankind. Lady Julia, then, who wants only three months of nineteen, is exactly what a poet or painter would wish to copy, who intended to personify the idea of female softness. Her whole form is delicate and feminine to the utmost degree. Her complexion is fair, enlivened by the bloom of youth, and often diversified by blushes more beautiful than those of the morning. Her features are regular, her mouth and teeth particularly lovely, her hair light brown, her eyes blue, full of softness, and strongly expressive of the exquisite sensibility of her soul. Her countenance, the beauteous abode of the loves and the smiles, 
has a mixture of sweetness and spirit, which gives life and expression to her charms. As her mind has been adorned, not warped, by education, it is just what her appearance promises. Artless, gentle, timid, soft, sincere, compassionate, awake to all the finer impressions of tenderness and melting with pity for every human woe. But my horses are in the court, and even this subject cannot detain me a moment longer. Adieu! H. Mandeville Epistle George To George Mordaunt, Esquire Your raillery, my dear Mordaunt, gives me pain. That I have the tenderest attachment to Lady Julia is certain. But it is an attachment which has not the least resemblance to love. I should be the most ungrateful of mankind to make so ill a return to the friendship Lord Belmont honours me with, and the most selfish to entertain a wish so much to Lady Julia's disadvantage. My birth, it must be confessed, is not unworthy even her, since the same blood fills our veins, my father being descended from the eldest brother of the first Earl of Belmont, great-grandfather of the present. But it would ill become a man whose whole expectations are limited to the inheritance of seven hundred pounds a year, long, very long may it be, before the greatest of all misfortunes makes even that little mine, to aspire to the heiress of twice as many thousands. What I feel for this most charming of women is the tenderness of a relation, mixed with that soft and lively esteem which it is impossible to refuse to the finest understanding and noblest mind in the world, lodged in a form almost celestial. Love, for I have tasted its poisoned cup, is all tumult, disorder, madness. But my friendship for Lady Julia, warm and animated as it is, is calm, tranquil, gentle, productive of a thousand innocent pleasures, but a stranger to every kind of inquietude. It does not even disturb my rest, a certain consequence of love, even in, in its earliest approaches. Having thus vindicated myself from all suspicion of a passion, which in the present situation of my fortune I should think almost a criminal one, I proceed to obey you in giving you the portraits of my noble friends, though I assure you my sketches will be very imperfect ones. Lord Belmont, who lives eight months of the year in the, at this charming seat, with all the magnificence and hospitality of our ancient English nobility, is about sixty years old. His person is tall, well-made, graceful, his air commanding, and full of dignity. He has strong sense, with a competent share of learning, and a just and delicate taste for the fine arts, especially music, which he studied in Italy under the best masters that region of harmony afforded. His politeness is equally the result of a natural desire of obliging, and an early and extensive acquaintance with the great world. A liberality which scarce his ample possessions can bound, a paternal care of all placed by providence under his protection, a glowing zeal for the liberty, prosperity, and honour of his country, the noblest spirit of independence, with the most animated attachment and firmest loyalty to his accomplished sovereign, are traits too strongly marked to escape the most careless observer. 
but those only who are admitted to his nearest intimacy are judges of his domestic virtues, or see in full light the tender, the polite, attentive husband, the fond, indulgent parent, the warm, unwearied friend. If there is a shade in this picture, it is a prejudice, perhaps rather too strong, in favor of birth, and a slowness to expect very exalted virtues in any man who cannot trace his ancestors as far back, at least, as the conquests. Lady Belmont, who is about six years younger than her lord, with all the strength of reason and steadiness of mind generally confined to the best of our sex, has all the winning softness becoming the most amiable of her own. Gentle, affable, social, polite, she joins the graces of a court to the simplicity of a cottage, and, by an inexpressible ease and sweetness in her address, makes all who approach her happy, impartial in her politeness. At her genial board, no invidious distinctions take place, no cold regards damp the heart of an inferior. By a peculiar delicacy of good breeding and engaging attention to every individual, she banishes reserve and diffuses a spirit of convivial joy around her. Encouraged by her notice, the timid lose their diffidence in her presence, and often, surprised, exert talents of pleasing they were before themselves unconscious of possessing. The best and most beloved of wives, of mothers, of mistresses, her domestic character is most lovely. Indeed, all her virtues are rendered doubly charming by a certain grace, a delicate finishing, which it is much easier to feel than to describe. The economy of her house, which she does not disdain herself to direct, is magnificent without profusion, and regular without constraint. The effects of her cares appear, the cause is unobserved. All wears the smiling, easy air of chance, though conducted with the most admirable order. Her form is perfectly elegant, and her countenance, without having ever been beautiful, has a benignity in it more engaging than beauty itself. Lady Anne Wilmot, my father, and myself, make up the present party at Belmont. Lady Anne, who, without regularity of features, has that animation which is the soul of beauty, is the widow of a very rich country gentleman, if it be just to prostitute the name of gentleman to beings of his order, only because they have estates of which they are unworthy, and are descended from ancestors whom they dishonour, who, when riding post through Europe, happened to see her with her father at Turin, and, as she was the handsomest Englishwoman there, and the whim of being married just then seized him, asked her of Lord Blank, who could not refuse his daughter to a jointure of three thousand pounds a year. She returned soon to England with her husband, where, during four years, she enjoyed the happiness of listening to the interesting histories of the chase, and entertaining the Blankshire hunt at dinner. Her slumbers broken by the noise of hounds in a morning, and the riotous mirth of less rational animals at night. Fortune, however, at length took pity on her sufferings, and the good squire, overheating himself at a fox-chase, of which a fever was the consequence, left her young and rich, at full liberty to return to the cheerful haunts of men, with no very high ideas of matrimonial felicity, and an abhorrence of a country life, which nothing but her friendship for Lady Belmont could have one moment suspended. A great flow of animal spirits, and a French education, have made her a coquette, 
though intended by nature for a much superior character. She is elegant in her dress, equipage, and manner of living, and rather profuse in her expenses. I had first the honor of knowing her last winter at Paris, from whence she has been returned about six weeks, three of which she has passed at Belmont. Nothing can be more easy or agreeable than the manner of living here. It is perfectly domestic, yet so diversified with amusements, as to exclude that satiety from which the best and purest of sublunary enjoyments are not secure, if continued in too uniform a course. We read, we write, we converse, we play, we dance, we sing, join the company, or indulge in pensive solitude and meditation, just as fancy leads. Liberty, restrained alone by virtue and politeness, is the law, and inclination the sovereign guide at this mansion of true hospitality. Free from all the shackles of idle ceremony, the whole business of Lord Belmont's guests, and the highest satisfaction they can give their noble host, is to be happy, and to consult their own taste entirely in their manner of being so. Reading, music, riding, and conversation are Lord Belmont's favorite pleasures, but none that are innocent are excluded. Balls, plays, concerts, cards, bowls, billiards, and parties of pleasure round the neighboring country relieve each other, and whilst their variety prevents any of them from satiating, all conspire to give a double poignancy to the sweeter joys of domestic life. The calm and tender hours which this charming family devote to the endearing conversation of each other, and of those friends particularly honored with their esteem. The house, which is the work of Inigo Jones, is magnificent to the utmost degree. It stands on the summit of a slowly rising hill facing the south, and, beyond a spacious court, has in front an avenue of the tallest trees, bounded at a distance by a mountain, down the sides of which rushes a foaming cascade, which spreads into a thousand meandering streams in the vale below. The gardens and park, which are behind the house, are romantic beyond the wantonness of imagination, and the whole adjoining country diversified with hills, valleys, woods, rivers, plains, and every charm of lovely, unadorned nature. Here Lord Belmont enjoys the most unmixed and lively of all human pleasures, that of making others happy. His estate conveys the strongest idea of the patriarchal government. He seems a beneficent father surrounded by his children, over whom reverence, gratitude, and love give him an absolute authority, which he never exerts but for their good. Every eye shines with transport at his sight. Parents point him out to their children. The first accents of prattling infancy are taught to lisp his honored name, and age, supported by his bounteous hand, pours out the fervent prayer to heaven for its benefactor. To a life like this, and to an ardent love of independence, Lord Belmont sacrifices all the anxious and corroding cares of avarice and ambition, and finds his account in health, freedom, cheerfulness, and that sweet peace which goodness bosoms ever. Adieu! I am going with Lord Belmont and my father to Acton Grange, and shall not return till Thursday. H. Mandeville Epistle George To George Mordaunt, Esquire Friday We returned yesterday about six in the evening, and the moment we alighted, my lord leading us into the garden, an unexpected scene opened on my view, 
which recalled the idea of the fabulous pleasures of the golden age, and could not but be infinitely pleasing to every mind uncorrupted by the false glare of tinseled pomp, and awake to the genuine charms of simplicity and nature. On a spacious lawn, bounded on every side by a profusion of the most odoriferous flowering shrubs, a joyous band of villagers were assembled, the young men dressed in green, youth, health, and pleasure in their air, led up their artless charmers, in straw hats adorned with the spoils of flora, to the rustic sound of the tabor and pipe. Round the lawn, at equal intervals, were raised temporary arbors of branches of trees, in which the refreshments were prepared for the dancers, and between the arbors, seats of moss for their parents, shaded from the sun by green awnings on poles, round which were twined wreaths of flowers, breathing the sweets of the spring. The surprise, the gaiety of the scene, the flow of general joy, the sight of so many happy people, the countenances of the enraptured parents who seemed to live over again the sprightly season of youth in their children, with the benevolent pleasure in the looks of the noble bestowers of the feast, filled my eyes with tears, and my swelling heart with a sensation of pure yet lively transport, to which the joys of courtly balls are mean. The ladies, who were sitting in conversation with some of the oldest of the villagers, rose at our approach, and, my lord giving Lady Anne Wilmot's hand to my father, and honouring me with Lady Julia's, we mixed in the rustic ball. The loveliest of women had an elegant simplicity in her air and habit, which became the scene, and gave her a thousand new charms. She was dressed in a straw-coloured, lustring nightgown, the lightest gauze linen, a hat with purple ribbons, and a sprig of glowing purple amaranthus in her bosom. I know not how to convey an idea of the particular style of beauty in which she then appeared. Youth, health, sprightliness, and innocence all struck the imagination at once. Paint to yourself the exquisite proportion, the playful air and easy movement of a Venus, with the vivid bloom of an Ebe. However high you raise your ideas, they will fall infinitely short of the divine original. The approach of night putting an end to the rural assembly, the villagers retired to the hall, where they continued dancing, and our happy party passed the rest of the evening in that sweet and lively conversation which is never to be found but amongst those of the first sense and politeness, united by that perfect confidence which makes the most trifling subjects interesting. None of us thought of separating, or imagined at midnight, when, my father opening a window, the rising sun broke in upon us, and convinced us on what swift and downy pinions the hours of happiness flit away. Adieu. H. Mandeville End of Section 1